Have you ever gotten an offer that's too good to be true? Uh, when I first moved out from my parents' home, and I, I got this offer in the mail. It was from some company called Publishers Clearinghouse. And I had won 20 million bucks, and all they wanted me to do was buy a magazine. And I thought, pay me the 20 million, and I'll buy all your magazines. Just, uh, that, that would be fine. Uh, I never saw that 20 million. It would have helped out a lot. And then a few years back, maybe some of you got the same thing. There was a uh, thing that came from somebody in Nigeria or Ethiopia, and they just wanted, somehow they got my name, and they just wanted to deposit $10 million in my account. And all I had to do was give them the bank account numbers. They'd put it in, and after a few months for letting me keep it, they would pay me 10% of it. So uh, those of you who took them up on that offer found out there really are offers too good to be true. When I went to buy my first used car, uh, and the most amazing thing happened. That used car dealer really liked me. I mean, he really liked me. And he was going to do things for me he couldn't have done for his own mother. And he was going to throw in, you know, changing the air pressure, constant, whatever he was going to do. And it was this great car. It turned out to be a horrible car. Um, but that was my own mistake. When we hear an offer, and it's too good to be true, and if you've lived any length of time, you find yourself saying, if it's too good to be true, it is, or there is no such thing as a free lunch. I want to talk to you about a free lunch today. I want to talk to you about an offer that's too good to be true. But it is, because it's guaranteed by the one who has never lied and the one whose character is such that so it can put absolute faith in what he says. And it's out of Isaiah 50, 55, which uh, David already read for us. Um, but before we get to that passage, let me just set up what Isaiah, uh, the book of Isaiah. Um, if you read through Isaiah, the first 40 chapters, 39 chapters, really deal with judgment. The people of God have left God. They have they have forsaken him, as have the peoples of the world. And you'll read it, and there's these judgments that are coming down on all sorts of different people. But in Isaiah 40, something changes. And in Isaiah 40, the Isaiah 40 begins, Comfort, O comfort, my people Israel. And for the rest of the book, God is drawing them back to himself. And in Isaiah 53... That famous passage in Isaiah, we find out how God is going to do that. And that is that he is going to send his servant, who we of course know is Jesus Christ. And his servant is going to come. And if you turn to Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him the chastisement upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his stripes we were healed all we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all and in chapter 54 which is actually a continuation of that poem he he calls Israel back to himself. But in Isaiah 55, the invitation goes out to the whole world, and that includes us. 
And the invitation begins in Isaiah 55, and if you would turn there, we're going to not read the whole psalm because David already did that, but I do want to go through, if I can, the entire psalm this morning because I think it all, it's not, I'll say psalm, it's actually a, the, the writings of the, the prophet. Um, it, it, it all hangs together, so we're going to go through the entire thing. Um, starting at verse 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Question is, what is he talking about? I know when I was in college, we used to sing a song at the church I was at, it was, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And we sang it every week, and I had no idea what I was singing. I sang it, and it was just this catchy song. I actually thought about having Blake uh, do it. Then I watched it on YouTube, and I thought, probably better not. Um, but if you want to do it, type in, Ho, everyone that thirsteth. That's the way it is in the King James. Ho, it's a, like a carnival barker calling people, come. And, and I sang it, and I didn't, understood, didn't understand what it meant. So the question is, what is he talking about? Well, let's look at first the invitation. The invitation is to come. Do you see it? Four times in the first verse. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Four times the word come is used. And then if you jump down to verse 3, incline your ear and come to me. So five times the invitation is to come. And four times he begs us to listen to him, uh, starting in verse, the middle of verse 2. Listen diligently to me. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Uh, uh, actually, that's three times, but there's the, the call is to come, and we're being begged to listen to God. And what we're being called to do is come to the waters. There's two people that are talked about here, but I think they're the same group. In fact, I think this goes to all people. It says, come, everyone who thirsts. If you're thirsty, if you're hungry, the invitation is to you to come to God, to come to the waters, to come and to be satisfied. Come, everyone who thirsts. But then there's two groups in that group of everyone who thirsts. I actually think there's three. And the first one is the one who has no money. And he's being, they're being invited to come to drink clear water, to buy milk and wine and bread. But they have no money. It says, come, he who has no money, come buy and eat. How is that supposed to happen? But there's a second group in here as well. And that's in verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which satisfies not? So apparently there's another group of people who have some resources, but they're wasting their resources. They're buying things that don't satisfy. They're buying bread that doesn't satisfy. The picture here is of bread which is made of sawdust. It's fake bread. 
It might look like bread, but if you eat it, it's not going to taste good, and it's going to do absolutely nothing to satisfy your hunger. When I was growing up, and maybe people still do this, but it seemed like all the ladies had fake grapes. Go into my friend's house. Everybody had fake grapes. And you could pop those grapes off. And we did as little kids, and we got in trouble because then we'd lose them. And before long, the grape, well, it looked like a real bunch of grapes. But anyways, um, we'd pull that off, and you could stick it to your tongue. But boy, if you tried to eat it, you found out pretty quickly that fake grapes were not very nourishing. They didn't taste good. By the way, you could chew on them for a long, long time, but it accomplished nothing. And so the prophet is saying, look, Some of you are without money. Come by and eat. There's another group of you who have some money. You have some resources. But everything you're purchasing is failing to satisfy the desire. You're buying bread that doesn't satisfy. And the water that you're drinking is polluted. And the wine is is is, uh, vinegar. And the, the milk is curdled. And you're wasting your money. Why do you do that? So the question is, what is he talking about? And I think the answer to that comes from the New Testament. I think you could pick it up from these passages. Some of you already know where we're going. But you go to the New Testament. In fact, let's do that. Jump to Matthew chapter 5. This is at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Jesus has been born. He has been uh, baptized. He's been tempted by Satan. And now he begins teaching and chronologically, this isn't probably the, when the sermon happened, but this is where Matthew puts it. What's the first thing Jesus says in the Beatitudes? Verse 2, blessed are the poor in spirit. Look, the only way to come to God is to recognize your poverty, to recognize that there's absolutely nothing that you have that you can offer God, and really there's nothing you have that can satisfy your deepest needs and desires. And then you go down to verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jesus begins by saying, if you want to come to me, you'd better be poor and hungry and thirsty. You remember the, it was one of the most tender passages in the New Testament. When Jesus goes on a special journey through Samaria to meet with a woman at the well. And he meets her at noon, which if we understand the culture right, means that she's not there when the other women are there because they would go in the morning when it was cool or the evening when it was cool. Why is she there at noon? Well, we find out. But Jesus walks up to her and says, could you give me something to drink? And she's surprised and she says, why should I do that for you? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. And Jesus says, "Um, anybody who drinks this water. You know what? We better turn there (laughs) because I'm going to mess it up. John chapter 4. Just go over quick to John chapter 4. In John chapter 4 and John chapter 4 verse 10. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God, And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked me. Uh, You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
And then the woman says, you don't have anything to draw with. She still doesn't understand. And Jesus says, if you drink of that water, you're going to thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I give you, you will never thirst again. And then Jesus asks her to call her husband to come. And I think Jesus is revealing why this woman is spiritually impoverished. Because she's had, she answers correctly, I don't have a husband, I've had five husbands. And the man I'm living with is not my husband. Do you sense the emptiness in that woman? She's been rejected by five men. It was men who divorced women, not the other way around. She's been rejected by five men. And no one will marry her, and she's living with a man against all social norms. She's an outcast. She has nothing. And what is Jesus offering her? Come, buy and eat. Come, satisfy your desires. If you go to John, just a couple verses over in John, uh, John chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And afterwards, in verse 36, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus' offer is that he is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will never hunger and will never thirst. Jesus calls out to the weary. Come, everyone who is weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's go back to Isaiah 55. this is a salvation message. If you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, nothing that you do will satisfy you. Because the, the, the problem is that the most important thing, the only one who can satisfy your needs is not a part of your life. But there's many of you in this room who already have come to Christ. In fact, I would gather that in this audience, most of you have. Let me ask you a question. And it's a question that's weighed on me all week long as I examine my own life. Take a look at your own life. Stop for a minute. Are you hungry? Are you thirsty? In other words... Is your life full or is there something missing? Are are we looking for something more? If I only had this, I would be satisfied. Who knows what it is? Everybody is going to be different. You know, if my husband would just be somewhat different, I would be so happy. Yeah, you would, but it wouldn't satisfy the deepest needs. If my kids were different, if I had a better job, if I, if I was married or if I was unmarried, whatever it is, here's the question. When you truly examine your life, are you hungry and thirsty? Do you ever get to the end of the day and ask, is this all there is? Is this all there is to this? It would be better if I was just done. Do you look forward and say, boy, I just wish I was retired? Those of you who are near that age. Man, I just wish I was retired. Then I'd be happy. Do you understand? 
We spend our money as believers, I think. We spend our money on that which is not bread. We fill our lives with things. We fill our lives with other stuff. And although we have come to the waters, if you're a believer, and we have drank of the, the, the water and we've eaten, if we're not in right relationship with Jesus Christ, our life becomes empty and hollow and dry and thirsty. It looks like the fields out here where the water, the rain hasn't fallen and it's barren and it's dry. And so the invitation isn't just for non-believers, it's for us. Come to the waters. Listen diligently to me and incline your ear to me here that your soul may live. The, psalm go, or the proverb goes on or the passage goes on in the middle of verse Three. Oh, before we go on, I just about skipped something. Here's the amazing graciousness and goodness of God. What would he have to do to satisfy us? If you're thirsty, what do you need? You need water. Anybody here been truly thirsty? Where you were out working and there wasn't any water, or maybe you were backpacking and the canteen ran out? I was backpacking once, and we hiked up over the hill. I was the only one smart enough to bring enough water, and there were four guys, so we shared it. And on the way back, we were dying of thirst. And we finally saw this little trickle of water going, and we, despite the fact that we might get Giardia, we went and we drank. You know what I wanted? I wanted water. If you'd offered me Kool-Aid, I might have taken it, but my desire was for water. And bread is the staff of life. That's all God has to offer. But what does he offer us? He offers us water, and he offers us milk, and he offers us wine, and he offers us rich food. When you come to God's table, he has everything there. Water is to quench our thirst. Milk is to give us nourishment. And wine is for joy, for exhilaration. And if you're missing that in your life, then you need to come to the waters. You need to come, buy, and eat. You say, I don't have any resources. That's exactly what God wants of you. By the way, I said at the beginning, there's a third type of person. There are people who still think they can satisfy their desires, uh, who don't know that they're hungry or thirsty yet at this point. But they will be. They will be. All right, go on to verse 3, middle of verse 3. How does God accomplish this? And he says in verse 3, middle of it, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, the steadfast, sure love for David, because I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel for he has glorified you. How does God accomplish this? How does he give us bread and wine that we didn't pay for? Well, he makes a covenant with us, and it's an everlasting covenant. It's an everlasting covenant um, like the covenant he made with David. The covenant with David was an everlasting covenant. He came to David, and he said, there will be someone from your line that will sit on the throne forever. And David 
when, when uh, in Psalm 89, when this promise is reiterated, David's been long dead. There's nothing David can do to change that. The, the Jewish people misunderstood. They thought there would always be a king over Israel. But of course, we know from the New Testament that that's Jesus, David's heir who sits on the throne forever. We have been offered a covenant. God enters into an agreement with us, and that agreement with us is an everlasting covenant. And we see it in Matthew chapter 26. Go over to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse uh, 26. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a, in a few minutes. This is Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. It says, Now as they were eating, Jesus broke bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink, of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This is a surprise in light of what's being said in Isaiah that the sign of the covenant, the covenant is instituted with bread and wine, that our Every need is fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And not only our needs, but our wants. Everything, God wants us to be joyful and at peace with him. By the way, the sign of the covenant, but the initiation of the covenant is baptism. Pure water, being put into pure water. Back to Isaiah 55. You might be saying, well, is there a catch? Well, there's actually no catch. It's an offer, and it's a straight-up offer. Come to the waters. But in verse 6, we are encouraged to do this, and a reason is given as to why it is that we don't experience the fullness of God's life in us. Verse 6, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now that last verse, we oftentimes pull out and use in all sorts of situations, but I believe it fits perfectly in here. The the passage begins, or verse 6 begins, seek the Lord while he may be found and call upon him while he is near. Once we've heard the invitation, we should seek the Lord and call upon him. Uh, it says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Here's what I believe, and I believe it from the rest of the passage. We'll get to it in a minute, but I need to say it now. Uh, whenever you sit under the teaching of the word, um, God can be found. Now, if you're a believer, Christ is in you. He is always present. But if you're not a believer, if 
you're not a believer, when you hear the Word of God taught, He can be found. And you'll see that in a couple of minutes. Just hold on to that thought. Seek the Lord while He may be found. If you're sitting in here and you've never made a commitment to Christ, then right now, God can be found. Seek Him, and He'll be found. Um, if, if you say, well, I'll do it some other time, you don't know if you have another time. You don't know when you'll hear the preaching of God's Word again. You don't know that. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. It's interesting, the prophet doesn't use the word pray. He just says call. Call out. He called to you, come. You call out to Him saying, I want to come. But there's something that has to be done. And what has to be done is in verse 7. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. We have a problem. And the problem is a sin problem. And the sin problem goes all the way back to the garden. And now, let's move from the New Testament all the way back to the beginning of the Old Testament. In the garden, man in perfect fellowship with God, um, doing exactly what he was meant to do, having a relationship with God and glorifying God simply by living and being obedient to God. And man, in the form of Adam, Adam sins. And, And all of a sudden, that relationship is broken. And because that relationship is broken, man becomes hungry and thirsty and desperate and begins to fill his life with all sorts of other things. So what's the first thing we have to do? And we have to forsake our ways. Let him, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Notice what happens. You return to the Lord. We were with the Lord in the garden. It's time to return to the Lord. It's time to return. But then he throws out this verse, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, your ways my ways. Why does he say that right here? Well, I, I think part of it is we don't see sin the way God sees sin. We don't understand what sin does. Sin isn't just something bad that you do. Sin is breaking a relationship with God. Sin is cutting us off from the, from the source of life. Sin always breaks something. It always breaks something. We tend to downplay the importance of our sin. God doesn't do that, not because... I have to be careful what I say. He, he doesn't, doesn't downplay the sin, but he understands the consequence of sin. Turn from your wicked ways... Stop doing what you're doing and return to the Lord. Um, I think there's other ways that, that God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Many people feel like when they come to God, they have to have something to offer him. But remember who you were. You have no money. You have absolutely nothing. Or sometimes people say, I am so bad that I can't come to God. I've talked with people like that before. I can't come to God. Look at what I've done. Like, no, your thoughts are not God's thoughts. There's no sin that is so big that God's grace can't cover it. 
And that's why we see again, we saw God abundantly offering us food and wine and milk. And now he says, let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. That the command there is to call upon the Lord while he is near. Let me talk about this. My thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. Go back to John chapter 6 for me. John chapter 6 is the passage, we've already looked at it, where Jesus feeds the 5,000. And if you remember the story, they come and they want to make him king. And Jesus refuses that. And they don't like that. And um, they are actually seeking him in verse 26, which is kind of interesting. So this is John 6, verse 26. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And then he says, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of God will give to you. For on him the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, listen to the thinking, the ways which are not God's ways. They said to him, what must we be doing? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Do you hear the mind of man immediately? What do I have to do to earn this? What do I have to do to make this happen? What do I have to do? And what's Jesus' answer in verse 29? Jesus answered, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Um, Go over to Romans chapter 9. We're calling about calling out upon the Lord. Uh, Excuse me, um, Romans 10, not Romans 9, Romans 10. Actually, we're going to start at verse 6. It says, But the unrighteousness based on faith, oh, excuse me, but the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And then verse 13 For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth, turn from your sins, and God fills your every need. The hungering and the thirsting that you have. Okay, back to Isaiah 55.
Verse 10 and 11 are verses as well that sometimes we take out of context. But again, I want to put them into the context of the psalm. It says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish the purpose, accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's a wonderful passage on the importance of the Word of God, but in the context, I want you to just picture what, Jesus, what uh, Isaiah just said. In verse 9, he says, verse 8, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, right? So God is saying, here here you are, down here. Here I am up here. And in fact, it's so high that it's an inconceivable distance between us. How high are the heavens? Really high, okay? Even to a person back then, that was a span that could not be breached. We now at least can send rockets up there. But, but there was no way to get from earth to heaven. So how am I going to know God's thoughts? Well, there is something that spans the heavens. We haven't seen it around here much, but it's called rain. Right? The clouds come in. And the rain comes down. And God comes near. That the distance between the heavens and the earth are spanned by the rain which comes down from heaven. God gives us his word. His thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not his ways, but he comes near. He brings us his word. He gives us his word so that we would would know his thoughts. And his thoughts are magnificent thoughts. They bring forth seed, they cause the earth to sprout, and they always accomplish their purpose. And of course, this book is God's word. But we also know that Jesus is God's word. Jesus is the one who came down out of heaven. Jesus is the one who brought God's thoughts to us. In fact, Jesus came and didn't just give the thoughts of God to us, but actually lived it in front of us. Go to Hebrews chapter um, chapter 1. And of course, we could look at John chapter 1 as well. Hebrews chapter 1. <clears throat> Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God has always spoken to man. He's always bridged the gap, his thoughts and our thoughts. He used to do it by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Let me me go back to the beginning here. And this is what I've been chewing on all week long. We live in a society that downplays the importance of God's word. We live in a society where there is, are so many distractions that many of us 
don't take time to get to know God's thoughts. Yes, you come and you hear Pastor Scott preach every week, and that's great. But let me ask you a question. If you're feeling hungry and thirsty, are you hungering and thirsting for God's word? Or are you filling it up with other things? Um, I teach at a school where all the kids have iPads. You know what happens the second that there's a free time? Ah, some of you know because you do it too. What happens? The iPad comes out and they're playing Flappy Birds, if you can still get that. Or they're playing Trivia Crack. Those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, just ask your kids. It's Trivia Crack. Or there's some game that they're playing. Or they're texting this person, they're doing that. Now, I, I don't play a lot of games on my iPad, but you know what I do do? And my wife can attest to this, and this is what's been weighing on me all week. I, I have blogs that I read, and I like to watch funny videos, right? And, and I spend an inordinate amount of time thinking other people's thoughts or amusing myself. You, you know what the word amuse means? The word muse means to think. What does that little prefix a mean? It means to not think, Right? We, we spend our time amusing ourselves. We spend our time playing games. We spend our time doing everything else but thinking about God. And then we wonder why we're hungry and thirsty and why we look around and say, but I'm bored. I have all the entertainment that mankind could ever have. I could download a new game app every single day, right? And some of you, the iPad doesn't mean anything, but you pour yourself into sports. And every waking moment, you're thinking about sports. And if your team wins, you're happy. And if it loses, you're not happy. But after a while, none of it matters anymore. Or maybe you're pouring yourself into your work. You know, I I, I go back because, like I said, I spend too much time. This is what I've been wrestling with this week as I started studying this. I thought I was going to prepare a message for you, but it came back on me. If we're amusing ourselves all the time, could you imagine what you would think if I told you that I came home every night and got so drunk I couldn't think? You, You would pity me probably. You'd say, oh, that's sad. But how is what we're doing any different? <laughs> if, if we don't ever stop and ponder the ways of God, if we're not in right relationship with Christ, if we're not spending our time pouring ourselves into his word, then we should expect to be hungry and thirsty. We should expect our lives to find to be places where we say, what's the point? I just wish it was done. But that's not what God wants for us, right? Go back to Isaiah. Look at the last two verses of Isaiah, and with this we finish. Isaiah 55, 12. Actually, let's just back up to verse 11. God's word will succeed in the thing for which he sent it. What is God's purpose in sending his word It's to take us back and restore our relationship with him. It's to undo the effects of the curse. It's to restore relationship. 
Anybody who knows me very long knows that one of the most influential things that I have ever heard comes out of the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it says, what is the chief end of man or the purpose of men? And the answer is to glorify God and what? Enjoy him forever. God has made us for himself, and he has made us for joy. And if you're not filling yourself with him, you will find that you are not filled with joy. If you're not spending time in his word, you're not going to be filled with joy. So look at how this ends. It says in verse 11, my word will accomplish its purpose. Okay, what's the purpose of his word? Verse 12, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar will come up the myrtle. It shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. God wants us to go out in joy and in singing and he wants us to be at peace. And the rest of this picture is that of the curse being rolled back. Do you catch the reference to thorns? When do we first hear about thorns in the Bible? When man is cursed. Nature falls. Nature is against us. I could ask the tree fruit farmers, when was the last time you went into your field and your trees applauded you? They said, good job for putting us in rows and making us bear fruit. No, it doesn't happen. In fact, it's a constant battle to get those trees to do what they want to do. We're digging up thorns, we're digging up briars, but this picture is of the end. God is going to roll back the curse. At some point, we will live in everlasting joy with Jesus Christ. But that should be the mark of us now. That should be the mark of us now. If you are not a joyful Christian, something's wrong. And what's wrong is your sins and your neglect of God and his word is trying to buy that which is not bread and fill yourself with it. So I think I've made my my application as we've gone through. But I would encourage you, examine your life. And, And in an audience this size, there may be some of you who have never yet put your faith and trust in Christ. I would just encourage you. Ask yourself the question, am I hungry and am I thirsty? And is anything that I'm doing filling that? And then ask the further question, is there anything I could conceivably think of that would fill that void? And I think if you're honest, you'll realize no. Nothing I can do. At some point, you will reach the place where you are spiritually bankrupt, nothing to offer. But the question is, will God be able to be found at that point? Seek the Lord now. You may never sit under that teaching again. And for those of us who are believers, let's go back to what we were saved for and and put aside all the distractions and all of the things and put our minds and our hearts on Jesus Christ. Uh, Study his word, uh, delight in him, and then we will go out in joy and be led forth in peace.